Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. There's a uh, theologian named Leslie Newbigin who once wrote this. He said, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. How can that message be made credible, persuasive to the world? According to Newbegin, the only answer is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. That's talking about us, friends. New Life Presbyterian, one among many congregations of men and women who believe the gospel and seek to live by it. I don't think Newbegin here is denying the need for evangelism, proclaiming the gospel, defending the gospel, but what he is saying is that there's something very important about adopting a very distinctive Christian way of life, that the way that we would live would adorn the gospel that we profess. As somebody once said, without words, nobody understands the gospel, but without actions, without a godly life, nobody cares. (laughs) Nobody listens when our lives don't adorn the gospel that we profess. I think this is something very important for us to consider, particularly in this day and age. When Paul wrote the book of Romans many centuries ago, he was writing in what we might call a pre-Christian culture. When Paul preached the gospel and his contemporaries preached the gospel, the name of Jesus fell on fresh ears, on people who hadn't heard the name of Jesus yet. They didn't have an opportunity yet to get confused by all the stereotypes and baggage attached to the gospel. Today we live in a post-Christian culture. And as many, particularly in the West, have heard the gospel, they've heard about Jesus, and they have attached to the gospel message all kinds of biases and misunderstandings that make it a real challenge to try to communicate the gospel into our culture. But here's one thing that will always cut through the baggage. Here's one thing that will always bring clarity to the misunderstandings. Love. Love is a universal language. Love is something people never get tired of receiving. Love is something that never gets old. Love is something that never becomes irrelevant. Love is something that never goes out of style. Love is something that never loses its appeal. And what Paul is calling us to do here in Romans chapter 8 is to love one another because love is what makes the gospel credible. The love of believers and local congregations is what makes the gospel credible. So that's what we're going to be looking at and considering here in Romans 13, 8 through 14. Last week, of course, we looked at verses 1 through 7 in chapter 13. And if you were here, you know we talked about the role of government in the lives of Christians, and the title of the sermon was The Gift of Government, that government has actually been given to us as a gift of grace. So in verses 1 through 7 in chapter 13, we see that the context has to do with the public lives of Christians. 
believers living under the authority of local government, national, state, and local. And so as we pick up here in verse 8, I think the context is continuing. That is, we're continuing to consider the lives of Christians, not just in the church, but in their neighborhoods, and in their communities, and in their schools, in the world. And we get this very clear command to how Christians ought to live in the world and in the places in which we've been placed. And so that's what we're going to read about now. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. For love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. God in heaven, would you please, by your spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Love is what makes the gospel credible. We need to take some time here to explore this text to see what it teaches us about what love is actually like. And the first thing we see here is that love should be shaped by the law. That's how Paul begins this passage with a reference to the law. So you see that in verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, here Paul is continuing the thought from verse 7 where he had instructed us to pay the taxes that we owe to the government. And in verse 8, he says now that we are to actually owe no one anything. So anything that is owed to anyone should be paid. Christians should be people who pay their debts, who meet their financial obligations. But then he moves on and says there is one thing that we can't fulfill in terms of an obligation, and that is the obligation to love each other. That is one debt that can't be fulfilled. We're never done with it. You can pay off your car and get the slip of paper from the bank to say that your financial obligation is done, but we never get that kind of notice from God when it comes to love. We always owe one another love. I owe it to you to love you. And I can also say, you owe it to me to love me. We all have an I owe you to one another based on this passage. We owe it to one another to love each other. But then Paul goes on to make this connection with the law. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, what is the law that he's talking about there? He's not talking about laws passed by Congress. He's not talking about speed limits in our local communities. He's talking about the moral law from the Old Testament. And what he's saying here is that when we love others, the law in its entirety 
is fulfilled. Now, it's important to consider that word fulfilled. It doesn't say that the law is ended. It doesn't say that the law becomes irrelevant. It doesn't say that the law um, is terminated or abolished. It's fulfilled. What Paul is saying here is that everything contained in the Old Testament law is captured in the act of loving. And so there's a very tight connection Paul is making between these two, law and love. You cannot obey the law of God apart from love. Sometimes we think we can kind of go through the mechanical motions of doing what God says, but this says, no, apart from love, you're not obeying the law. But you also can't love very well without the law because we need instruction about what love is like, how it should be defined, how it should be expressed in this world. So, a couple of questions that come up here that I think this passage answers us that I want to talk about. The first is this, is the Christian still under God's law? And Christians, theologians have debated this for centuries, and there's many different answers to this question. And if I can be a little bit evasive, I would say the answer is yes and no. Is the Christian still under God's law? Yes and no. There's a sense in which the Christian is not under God's law if you are looking to the law as a means by which to save yourself. Then you're not under law. That's what Paul said back in Romans 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law in the sense that He has already fulfilled the law for us, and when He died on the cross, He paid the penalty of the law for lawbreakers, and in His resurrection from the dead gives us freedom from condemnation of the law. That's what the gospel is all about. So, is the Christian still under the law of God as a means to salvation? No. But is the Christian still under God's law? the sense that we're responsible to obey it, that we are to look to the law to guide us and direct us about how we should live, and the answer to that is yes. In that sense, yes, you and I are under the law. And so, in verse 9, we get this repetition of the second part or the second table of the Ten Commandments. first part of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The second part has to do with our relationship to others, and that's what's quoted here in verse 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, Paul says. Paul's repeating these commands as a way of indicating that these commands still have relevance for you and me who follow Jesus. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. How these two are tied together? He didn't say, if you love me, therefore you can do whatever you want because love is enough. No, if you love me, you will look to see what my word says about how you're supposed to live and you will submit to those commands and obey them. A Puritan named Richard Secker said this, the law by which God rules us is as dear to him as the gospel by which he saves us. So in a sense, yes, the Christian is still under law. But the second question is this, and I already touched on this a bit, but this is a question that perhaps is asked more in our day and age, and that is this. Does love make the law unnecessary? 
I mean, does, do love and law really go together? I think many of us tend to think that there's something inconsistent about these two, something mutually exclusive about these two. So often we think of love as just kind of a, you know, a, a free-for-all. We, we hear these phrases in our culture like, love wins, and, you know, all you need is love. Any kind of love is, is okay. And all of those statements beg the question of what really is love? How should we define it? And who gets to define it? Who gets to say what love is? Is love just merely like me saying, I really love pizza? Is that the essence of love? Or the man who cheats on his wife and says, I really love my mistress? Is that really love? You know, in the world, you just kind of get this idea that any kind of emotion or feeling that happens to well up in my heart in a positive way to something, that's love. And it gets celebrated, and it gets affirmed, and it gets promoted. But what we're learning here in these first couple of verses of this passage is that love is shaped by the law. Law can't be filled apart from love, and love can't be properly expressed apart from the law. They go together. They're hand in hand. The world basically says this, love is God. The world worships love. And because the world kind of deifies love, it kind of allows love to just be and do and go wherever it wants. But the Bible gives a different message. It says God is love. Love is defined by Him. What we understand about love depends on what God says it is. And the best place where we get a definition of love is in the gospel itself, 1 John 4.10. The gospel is this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation for our sins, gave His Son as the means by which the wrath and anger of God would be turned away. That is love. Love is not God. God is love. And love is shaped by the law of God. John Stott says this, love cannot manage on its own without an objective moral standard. Love needs law for its direction, while law needs love for its inspiration. But like a train, <clears throat> a train on a track. The track is like the law of God directing the train on its course. But love is like the coal that you put into the engine to fire up the engine so that it can go somewhere. Where we get that energy, where we get the coal, is in the gospel. That's the fuel for loving. But there is a train track that directs us how we should go. I was watching a documentary a while ago on rock and roll, and there was a guy named uh, Roger McGuinn, some of you are familiar with, from the band The Birds in the 1960s. And uh, he was reflecting on kind of the whole summer of love in 1967 and kind of the whole hippie culture in the 60s. And he says, the whole idea that we could change the world musically with good thoughts and positive energy and good vibrations, that we could write songs that would make people love each other and not hate each other, that we could put an end to war and violence by positive thinking, it was a really wonderful idea. Didn't work. Great idea, but didn't work. It was a love that wasn't defined by what God says love should be like. And that's one reason that it didn't work. So love is shaped by the law. 
is what we're learning here. Second thing, love should lead to holiness. Love should lead to a particular kind of living. And this is where what we get from the second part of this passage, verses 11 through 14. And as we begin here, we get a problem, a theological problem that caused some people difficulty. It's there at the end of verse 11 and the start of verse 12. It says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now, when Paul mentions the night here, I think he's referring to the current age, the current fallen sinful age in which we live. When he talks about day, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus comes again. You see often in the scriptures uh, that described as the day of the Lord. And so that day is coming, but notice how Paul says it here. He says the day is at hand. It, it seems to suggest that what Paul was thinking is that the coming of Jesus was about to happen at any moment. Now, of course, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, didn't he? And here we are 2,000 years later, and Jesus he doesn't come back again. So, what's going on here? Is Paul wrong? There's many people who say, you see, the Bible's unreliable, we can't depend on it, it's not inerrant, because here's Paul thinking Jesus was going to come back any day, Jesus didn't come back, therefore the Bible is flawed, full of errors, we don't have to bother with it. But here's what I think Paul has in mind. If you kind of shift your focus, I think it can make sense what Paul is saying here. Think of this verse in terms of the whole course of redemptive history. Think of everything that has already occurred in God's plan to save us. I mean, going all the way back to Abraham after the fall, what did God do? He chose Abraham, one man. From Abraham came the nation of Israel. God entered into covenant covenantal promises through Moses and through David with the nation of Israel. He had the Old Testament written in which there were many prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Centuries go by as God's people are looking for the coming of this Messiah. And finally, in the incarnation, in the birth of Jesus in a stable, the Messiah has arrived. Prophecies are fulfilled. The Messiah then lives a life of obedience 33 years or so on this earth, performing miracles, teaching, fulfilling more prophecies. He goes to a cross. He lays down his life in fulfillment of other promises, offering up his life as an atonement for sin, and then he's resurrected from the dead. And after he's resurrected, he appears to the disciples, and he says the Holy Spirit is going to come and is going to fill you, hang on. And then Pentecost comes. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes and fills the people of God to live obediently, to Jesus, and Jesus says, now, here's the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Those are all significant events in redemptive history, and you know what? There's only one more event on God's calendar, and that's the second coming of Jesus. Everything else is done. Everything else is finished. Of course, a lot of things are going to happen, likely, before Jesus comes again, but in terms of significant, key, redemptive events, they're all finished. They've all been fulfilled except for one. And that's what Paul is saying here. The Lord is at hand. He's, he's not necessarily saying Jesus is coming next week. He's just saying there isn't much left to do before he comes again. And so I think that solves the problem. It's persuasive to me. 
what Paul must mean here. But since Jesus could return any time, and since we're at this place in redemptive history where there's only one last thing left for God to do, Paul gives us this direction in verse 11. You know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We are one step closer than we were yesterday, and all we're waiting for now is Jesus to come again. Therefore, friends, brothers and sisters, wake up. Get out of your spiritual slumber. Get out of bed and get ready. Jesus is coming. He is going to come again one day, and once he comes again, the time to repent and get right with him is over. It's done. It's finished. There's no more opportunity after that. That's what Paul is saying. Wake up. Wake up, people. So many people in this life are spiritually slumbering day after day, not giving any thought whatsoever to what's going to happen when they die, not giving an ounce of reflection to death, even though death is absolutely certain in all of your lives, in my life too. One thing you know is going to happen, and yet so many people don't give it any thought, no reflection. Why? Because they're in a spiritual slumber. They're in their little canoe on the river floating down the stream, having no idea that 100 yards down the way there's a waterfall and peril is certain to happen unless they wake up. Wake up. Are you in a spiritual slumber, friends? Do you ever think about eternity? Do you ever think about what's going to happen when you stand face to face with God one day and He asks you to give an account of your life? Wake up. The Bible repeatedly gives us these commands. Stay awake, Jesus says. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake, be sober. And then Paul goes on to, to give some examples of what he has in mind here. What is it to be awake? Well, it's, it's to cast off the works of darkness, verse 12, and to walk properly, verse 13, as in the daytime. That is to put aside those deeds that so often are conducted under the cover of darkness when nobody's looking, nobody's watching. He gives some examples of these in verse 13, orgies sexual immorality, sensuality. Very often those are things that are happening at, at nighttime. Drunkenness certainly happens in the daytime too, but very often in the nighttime. The Bible does not prohibit or condemn the drinking of alcohol, but the Bible definitely condemns drunkenness and substance abuse of all sorts. At the end of verse 13, he also mentions relational tensions, quarreling and jealousy with people, causing disputes, hard hearts, people constantly consumed with others who like others more than me, and envy and coveting. These are things that Paul is saying, if you're engaged in these things on an ongoing basis, these things characterize your lives, sexual immorality, sensuality, drunkenness, quarreling, jealousy. What Paul is saying is you need to wake up Consider the significance of that sin in the eyes of God. Now, friends, the, the church is a hospital for sinners. There's probably many people in this congregation who deal with these things that Paul has lifted. Jesus said he came not for the healthy but for the sick. He said, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for sinners. That, that's true. 
And this is a place for people who struggle with any of these sins to, to be, to worship, fellowship. But the scriptures are very clear that we are called to put these things away, to leave them behind, to pursue holiness, to repent of our sins. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, how do I do that? And, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I guess I just, you know, I'm not very good at these things. I just have to, I got to try harder. I got to do better. I got to go out there and I, I got to put more effort into it. I've got to be more moral. I got to be more righteous. I'm going to do it this time. You go out and you try and you mess up and you're discouraged and you're demoralized. I think Paul says something here that's very helpful to us in verse 14 to kind of sum this up. Here's how we do this. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus. That's where you get the power to do this. You don't just try harder. You put on Jesus by faith and then you find that you can do better because you're wearing the robe of righteousness that has been provided to you in the gospel. You know, when you wear clothes, clothes has an, have an effect on how you think of yourself, don't they? I mean, if you're wearing a suit and tie versus wearing pajamas, you just feel differently. There are certain things you're not going to do in a suit and tie that you might do in pajamas. Or a woman in a wedding dress versus being in her jogging shorts. You know, there's a difference about what you put on. It affects the way you act, the way you live, the way you think. And what Paul is saying is when you put on Jesus through faith, that is you go back to the gospel and you take Jesus for yourself and you identify with what he has done and you say, I am righteous in your sight through faith alone and my sins are forgiven because of you, Jesus. That's putting on Jesus. That's wearing him. And that's the motivation. That's the power that we have to pursue holiness. So love should lead to holiness. And then the last thing is this. Love should be directed to your neighbor. I skipped over that in these earlier passages. <clears throat> so let's look back at verse um, 10. To verse 9 also. After Paul gives these commandments, you should not murder, you should not covet, etc. They're all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So as Brian pointed out to us a little while ago, this comes from Luke excuse me, Leviticus chapter 19. Jesus also quoted this in Matthew 22 when a lawyer came to him and asked him what is the greatest command and he said the greatest command is to love the Lord God with your heart, soul, and mind. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Very quick and good question that might come up. Response to that is, who is my neighbor? How do I know who to love? Who is my neighbor? In Luke chapter 10, that's exactly the question that Jesus got when he this when he said love your neighbor as yourself and there was a lawyer there and he said okay Jesus tell me who is my neighbor and Jesus from that question launched into the story of the Good Samaritan did you know that the Good Samaritan was told in response to that question who is my neighbor the parable was told to us who our neighbor is and you know the story I think of the Good Samaritan there's a guy going down a road and he gets robbed, he gets beaten up, he gets injured, he gets left in a heap on the road, and Jesus says a priest comes by and just walks right by, he doesn't even bother to help the guy, and a Levite comes by and he does the same thing, walks right by, doesn't offer any help, but a Samaritan comes by. A Samaritan, somebody who Jews hated, someone 
that the Jews held in great contempt. And Jesus uses this Samaritan as an example of somebody who took care of the person who had been robbed and beaten. And the Samaritan goes to great lengths to make sure that this person's needs are met. And then Jesus asks the question, who do you think was a neighbor to this guy? They say, the Samaritan. He says, you're right, go and do likewise. Who is your neighbor? The Samaritan comes by some guy lying on the road, somebody he'd never met before, somebody he had no relationship with, somebody who wasn't necessarily in his church, somebody who he didn't even know what he believed spiritually or religiously, yet he helped him, loved him, cared for him. I think that's the context here in Romans 13. This is not a passage about Christians loving one another. Of course, that's part of it. I mean, we are called to love one another, right? I mean, and in fact, Jesus says this too. How is it that the world's going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another? So there's a powerful effect in the love that Christians have for one another. But again, here what Paul is saying is that we're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love people different than us. We're called to love people that we're not necessarily in relationship with. We heard wonderful stories on Sunday school this morning about our short-term mission trips at El Salvador and St. Louis where that exact kind of thing was happening. And it needs to happen in our lives too. This is the way we make the gospel credible. We love people. We should be lovers of people, of all kinds of people, and in particular people with whom we have disagreements and with whom there are major differences. So as an example, let, let me just uh, share this with you. Some of you might know uh, this woman named Rosaria Butterfield who's written a book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And um, I've just started reading this book and it's very good. Rosaria um, back in the, in the 90s was a professor at Syracuse University. She was a professor of um, critical theory, a professor of postmodernism, um, also a professor of what she called queer theory. So she was a lesbian and in a lesbian relationship and had written a lot about that and lectured uh, about that and had written something in the local newspaper there in Syracuse. And there was a local pastor named Ken Smith who read what she wrote and decided to respond. So um, Pastor Smith wrote her a letter and so in the book, she kind of describes what it was like to get the letter. She said, I just didn't know what to do with it. I didn't have any category in which to put this letter. It was, he, he wasn't challenging me. He wasn't arguing with me. He was just asking me questions about my belief system. She said she threw it away a couple times and then dug through the trash and got it out again. It was just haunting her. She couldn't get it out of her mind. So she responded to it finally. And um, Pastor Smith and Rosaria had a, a little dialogue. And finally, Pastor Smith invited her to his house for dinner and you know she was kind of nervous about that she had all kinds of suspicions about christians uh, evangelicals in particular but uh, decided to accept the invitation so she went to their house and so pastor smith and his wife um, invited her over so she got to the house and she noticed that uh, pastor smith's wife had cooked a vegetarian stir fry uh, knowing that she was a vegetarian and she said she also noticed that they didn't use any air conditioning. That was significant to her because she had concern about global warming and the effect of air conditioning on the ozone. So apparently they turned the air conditioner off, make her feel comfortable, to welcome her into their home. For dinner, they didn't share the gospel, didn't invite her to church, talked with her. They just listened to her. And for two years, studied the Bible, read the Bible together, 
had email conversation together. Sometimes Rosaria would get an email from Pastor Smith and she wouldn't respond for like a month or so. And when that happened and some time lapsed, she said the pastor would stop by her house, drop a book off, a loaf of bread, like any neighbor would do, she said. Just reconnecting and keeping that relationship going. And one thing that Rosaria said that really struck me about the conversation that she had with this couple, she said, they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. They gave her space. They gave her room to process. They gave her a safe place to think about the gospel and think about the scriptures. In other words, loved her, loved her well. And through that love, the gospel was made credible. It took time, but the Spirit was at work. Rosaria came to faith in Jesus, turned from her lesbian lifestyle, married to a man who happens to be a pastor. She's writing books talking about her conversion. I know that doesn't happen in every case. I'm not saying that if you have people over for dinner, they're going to become Christians and write books. I'm saying this is the way we make a difference in this world. We, we love people. Who is it in your life? Who, who is it maybe next door to you, in the cubicle next to you, in the seat next to you in school? What neighbors God put in your path that he's calling you to love? What would it be like if we as a congregation took this seriously, showed the world how much we believe in a man hanging on the cross as the last word in human affairs? by obeying his command to love our neighbors as ourselves. It would be exciting to find out, wouldn't it, what the Lord would do. God in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God of love, that you define love for us, that you, through your gospel and through your law, shape it for us. Would you please give us hearts of compassion for those different than us, those in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, Father, I know it's scary sometimes reaching out to people that we don't understand, who believe differently. Give us courage. Thank you, Father, that we're not the ones who convert. Your Spirit is the one who converts. We don't change people. You change people. And thank you, Lord, that you do that through the simple acts of love and the power of your Spirit. So use us for your glory in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.